Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll preview a water conference happening next week in Las Vegas, where stakeholders will weigh in on decisions that will affect the water supply for millions of people. And we talk with renowned ski map artist James Nehues, who's getting ready to pass the creative torch. The most important element of developing a good ski map is the human interpretation. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. On Wednesday, the Douglas County School Board voted 4-3 to to drop a requirement to wear masks in schools. The vote is the latest action in a debate that has unfolded slowly over the last few months. In October, a federal judge blocked a mask exemption and ruled that the Douglas County Health Department was violating the rights of students with disabilities. The vote comes at a critical time for Douglas County schools and schools around Colorado, which are now facing down the now-present Omicron variant and elevated COVID numbers around the state. Joining us to talk about this vote from Douglas County Schools, what it will mean for students and staff, and some other recent education news, is Erica Melter, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's begin with this vote from the school board in Douglas County to drop a mask requirement. Um, Can you bring us up to speed on how we got here? Of course. So this has been a very contentious issue in Douglas County for many months. This is a a more conservative community where a lot of people don't want their kids to have to wear masks. They started the school year without a mask mandate and adopted one in response to Tri-County Public Health requiring it. And of course, that then led to Douglas County um, splitting off with its own health department and the breakup of Tri-County Health. And these four new school board members, uh, among the issues that they ran on was um, that masking should be a personal choice and that we shouldn't have a requirement. And we had a, a very contentious meeting that, that, were, that extended for, for many hours with a lot of public comment. And then they voted four to three with all the new board members who had run on this issue voting to lift the mask mandate. The, the open question is whether there will be additional litigation around the rights of students who may have underlying medical conditions where they feel or their families feel that it's not safe for them to go to school if all the students are unmasked and then how does that affect their right to an education? And that was part of what was at play in this lawsuit. But in that case, the school district was the one who brought the lawsuit. And um, and so if the school district doesn't support masking and the school district isn't pursuing legal remedies to enforce masking, it's unclear what will happen. Will a parent group file a lawsuit? Will the U.S. Department of Education take a look as they have um, in some other states? At the same time, we have many school districts in Colorado that have never adopted a mask requirement and there hasn't been litigation. And so Douglas County may just become one of those school districts that does not have a mask requirement. And is there a sense, are you hearing anything that, you know, we might see some other school districts across the state pick up this momentum from Douglas County School Board and perhaps start to make similar changes in their own districts? I would expect that we would. We had conservative school boards elected in in a number of communities that 
you know, ran on this mask issue or that ran on more broadly local autonomy from the state. One of the reasons we saw more school districts adopt mask requirements in the fall is because even with the Delta variant, we were seeing a very large number of children um, infected with COVID, and that in turn was leading to quarantines and remote learning. And so a number of school districts where the community did not particularly support masking adopted a mask requirement because far fewer people have to quarantine if everyone in the classroom is wearing a mask. The, the state rules on quarantine haven't changed, and so that may still provide an incentive to many school districts to keep their mask requirement. At the same time, we may see school districts say essentially to the state, what are you going to do? You can't make me. And, and the state actually does have limited enforcement ability. And so I think that's going to be the tension that we're going to see play out in some communities. On the other hand, we saw a number of, especially you know, along the front range, school board members who supported masking were reelected by fairly healthy margins. And I would, I would expect that they would continue that policy, at least until we have higher vaccination rates for children and lower case rates in the state. And of course, children between the ages of 5 and 11 are now able to get their COVID-19 vaccines. How has the rollout been among that age group? Well, as of today, we have a little shy of a quarter of children age 5 to 11 who have gotten at least their first shot. And the state had set a goal of vaccinating half of these children by the end of January. On the one hand, that would seem like we're, we're on track. We're about halfway through the time period to reach that goal. But one open question is, is this a situation where there were some families that were very enthusiastic, had been eagerly awaiting the vaccine, and they went out and got their children vaccinated as soon as possible? But have we sort of used up that portion of the population? And will the rest of the population perhaps be more hesitant or take a longer time um, to decide to get their kids vaccinated? Right now for 12 to 17, uh, which eligibility for that population opened up um, I believe it was in May, we're now at 63% of that population vaccinated, which compares to about 75, 76% of the population as a whole. Similar to masking, I think, you know, getting these kids vaccinated would, would really reduce quarantines. Public health experts believe we have seen schools serve as a sort of reservoir of infection that even if infection might be low other places, we've seen very high COVID rates among children all fall and that it can then sort of recirculate from that population. So I think getting a higher vaccination rate among that population hopefully would reduce, you know, COVID rates overall in the community. But there is just a lot of families have expressed some hesitance, even if they're vaccinated themselves, they just feel a little different about vaccinating their children. Erica Meltzer is bureau chief at Chalkbeat Colorado, which covers education news around the state. Erica, thank you as always for joining us. Always a pleasure. More than 40 million people depend on water from the Colorado River, but its supply is steadily shrinking thanks to nearly two decades of drought. Meanwhile, demand for cities and farms across the region is going up. Next week, some of the most important people in Western Water will gather under one roof to discuss its future. The annual Colorado River Water Users Association meeting in Las Vegas brings together scientists, water managers, and other people who depend on the river. Also attending will be KUNC's own Alex Hager, who reports on the Colorado River. He joins us now to talk about what we can expect from the meeting. Hey, Alex. 
Howdy. Thanks for having me. So let's lay out the stakes at this year's conference. Why is it so important? Well, this meeting has been held since the mid-40s every year, but things have been different this decade and especially this year, you know, just because of the state of the river. So we are now in year 22 of drought, and it's on track to probably get worse. Basically, the Colorado River supplies all those millions of people you mentioned, farms, businesses, tribes, all the way from Wyoming to Mexico. And the people at this conference are trying to figure out how to keep supplying all of those people, even as they're there's less water to go around. And as we've talked about on this program before, climate change is making it so there's less water in the river. This is the first meeting since the federal government declared a water shortage uh, because water levels in Lake Mead dropped below a certain threshold. And then after that, that, that just launched this huge wave of attention from the media and from the public. So because of all that, this meeting is going to be under a magnifying glass like it just has not been in years before. So I talked to one water manager who said he's done dozens and dozens of interviews with news outlets from all over the world. Whereas before, this was a little bit more of a, a wonky regional issue. You know, they were talking about the Colorado River Basin at the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow earlier this year. That just speaks to the amount of attention this issue gets. So I'd expect a lot of attention on those decision makers who are going to be in Vegas to shape the future of the river. Indeed. Now, what are they going to be talking about at this conference? Well, the big thing looming over any discussions of river management right now is coming up with the next set of guidelines. So the current rules are going to expire in 2026. And between now and then, all of these people need to come together and work out a deal. Everyone's trying to figure out, first of all, how to balance the internal needs of their own states. There's a lot of different groups who use water, and the states are trying to keep them happy. I talked about that with Becky Mitchell, who directs the Colorado Water Conservation Board here in our state. Here's what she had to say. All of the different interests across Colorado, whether that is tribal interests, whether that's environmental interests, whether, whether that's agricultural interests, recreational interests, um, rural economy issues, things like that are all coming into play right now. And at the same time, they've got to come up with terms that other states are going to agree with, too. That's really at the heart of this. How do all of these groups balance their own interests while pulling from this shared resource? Mitchell said basically... They're going to arrive at a way to do it just because they absolutely have to. We have no choice but to get there. It may be an ugly road. Um, it may be bumpy. Um, you know, there, there may be some issues along the way, but that is the only option. And the window to figure that out is obviously getting smaller the closer we get to those older rules expiring in 2026. But realistically, it's even more urgent than that because of how much the drought is changing the whole landscape of water here and, and changing it quickly. Well, clearly the stakes are high and there is a lot of urgency. But can we expect any new agreements or new deals to come out of this conference? Yes, we, we probably can. There, there's always pressure at these meetings for the people in charge to come out of it with something to show for it. And just like everything else, that pressure is going to be heightened this year. I wanted to highlight one deal in particular. There's a lot of buzz around this new plan uh, that's come out of the past couple weeks. It's called the 500 plus plan. Basically, states in the lower Colorado River Basin, they're all coming together and agreeing to leave more water in Lake Mead in 2022 and 2023. So Nevada, California, Arizona, they're going to draw less from the river just so they can keep levels in that reservoir from getting dangerously low. Part of that means they're going to pay people to use less water, farmers, tribes, different water agencies. So a big part of that plan is putting together the funding to make it possible to use less, all to make sure they keep a safe amount stashed away in the reservoir. 
We're already seeing states pledge money towards the project, and there is optimism that it'll get signed in Vegas. Interesting. Well, Alex, water issues are pretty contentious. Do the people in charge feel like they will be able to actually work towards the common good? Yeah, Aaron, that is that is sort of the existential question here. I, I asked this to Becky Mitchell from Colorado, who we heard from before. Also, uh, I asked this to John Ensminger, who manages the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which is in charge of water for Las Vegas. Both of them said yes, simply because collaboration is the only way forward. Of course, there's plenty of details that need to be hashed out before then, but they are optimistic that somehow everyone involved will come out on the other side with agreements in one shape or another. And Ensminger said there's actually historical proof of that happening. He listed off a number of times since the turn of the millennium where there were tense negotiations, but eventually everyone involved found their way to a deal. Every one of those agreements was always on the brink of collapse because of adversarial animosity right up until we all figured out that it was the only path to success was to work together. And that really gets at the essence of water talk in the Colorado River Basin right now. How do we plan for a future with less to go around? And what's the balance between individual needs and collective needs? And at this conference, they're going to be zeroing in on those exact questions. And that is all going to be happening with the backdrop of climate scientists reminding us of just how critical things might get down the road. That is reporter Alex Hager, who covers the Colorado River Basin for KUNC. Alex, thank you for spending time with us, and we're looking forward to your dispatches from Vegas. Thank you so much. It's always good to be here. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Ski map artist James Nehus announced his retirement this year from hand-painting ski trail maps. Nehus, who lives in Parker, Colorado, has painted hundreds of ski resort maps in multiple countries over his 30-year career. But Nehus is passing the torch of his craft forward. Rad Smith, a Bozeman, Montana-based map illustrator and cartographer, has been studying under Nehus for six years. And now, as Nehus moves on to a new project painting American landscapes, Smith is continuing the work. We caught up with Nehus and Smith earlier this fall to talk about retirement, the art of ski map painting, and where the field is headed now. James, I'd like to start by just talking about your retirement. After decades of working on maps of ski trails, it's a pretty big deal to stop doing this. How did you come to the decision to retire? Age had a lot to do with it, I guess. I'm 75, and I've always uh, harbored a uh, a real uh, passion to do traditional landscapes. I've been taking photographs all the time that I've been on assignment and uh, in some terrific country and terrain. I just wanted to share some of those and and I realized I can't paint them all so I'm I've decided to go ahead and sketch them so they're they're going to be issued as sketches. I have a list of about 50 and the list grows. I'm at 20. I'm working on Crater Lake at the present time. Well, I was going to ask because sometimes when we say American landscapes people think of uh you know Iowa farmland or something like that. Uh what what are you going to focus on? Well, I'm, I'm going to focus on uh, the very dynamic uh, terrain that we have and the, and the diversity of the terrain that we have in America. You've got the Grand Canyon, you've got uh, Yosemite, you've got uh, Acadia, you know, it's just uh, and, and Niagara Falls, I could go on and on. So I, I would just like to illustrate these in a way that maybe they haven't been seen before. A little bit of uh, aerial views and some um, drone uh, views and then also some traditional 
uh, standing on the ground views. We spoke in 2019 about your art and career. Back then, you said when you started painting ski trails 30-some years ago, it was really just a job to you. When you started, you didn't even ski. And I'm wondering, what do you think the younger James would think about how far your career has come? Oh, boy. I I, uh, had no idea, you know, that it ever uh, lasts for 30 years, 35 years. Especially in the beginning, and it didn't take too long for me to get really passionate about ski maps. <clears throat> you know, I did uh, originally um, look up Bill Brown just to get a job and, and to make a living. And very soon, I had a career. And the people in the industry are just so incredible, and and it's such an exciting job. It, it had all the all the elements that I really love to do. A little bit of flying, uh, and then put it putting it together and and painting it. It's been a really gratifying career. It's just incredible that uh, I was given this opportunity. Now, also, James, when we spoke with you back in 2019, I had asked about using computers to create these maps and why couldn't that be done? Could you remind us now why a computer-drawn ski map just wouldn't quite be the same? Oh, yes. You know, there's so much that the human mind conceives and uh, interprets. And, um, you know, we we may have a vision like a photographic vision, but our, when we see something, our brains magnify on certain things and interpret certain things in certain ways. And, and I think that's uh, uh, the most important element of developing a good ski map is the human interpretation. And then, of course, the the hand painting, because the hand painting, you know, in one stroke of a brush, I can have uh, multiple different values and and colors in that stroke. Uh, So it's just more natural. It just comes off the page better. And uh, and, and it's something that people believe in. And and it it reflects the the nature and not, not an office with a computer generated map. Brad Smith, I want to bring you into the conversation here. I understand you actually do have a background in the kind of digital mapping that James is talking about. What kind of work were you doing um, before you connected with James? Yeah, so I, uh, I I worked for an environmental consulting firm for a number of years and was providing all kinds of, of digital supportive maps uh, on a variety of projects. Um, and those maps were Typically, uh, well, they were all computer generated um, for a number of reasons, but that's kind of how I got my start in, in, in the mapping world. I've um, always been attracted to maps, but, but that's how I got, got to making maps. And then how did you first connect with James? Uh, at the time, I was doing less kind of flat technical maps, and I was, I was illustrating more maps, more for collegiate campuses and things like that, but um, I was aware of James's work, and, and I, after working on some digital ski-related maps, I, I really wanted to, to reach out to, to the person I had gotten to know um, just through looking at his painted maps, um, and I had a background in painting, and, and I, I painted for fun in my free time and wanted to see if I could combine the two interests uh, of painting and mapping. I may add right here that, uh, you know, one day I was uh, going through reviewing some maps and, and I come up to Moonlight, which is up in Montana, and I, I looked at it and I thought, oh, 
gosh, that looks like my map, but I don't know. No, it's not quite right. But it was one of Rad's digital maps. And, you know, I don't like digital maps, but of the digital maps that were out there, Rad was doing the very best. And uh, he had a very good representation of that mountain. Um, that was my first digital trail map uh, of a ski area. And I spent so much time looking at James's map of Moonlight. When I produced that digital map, I, I, I literally, in my mind, dissected his map to, to produce my digital map. And, and that was the impetus for me to, to contact uh, James because I still wasn't, I was proud of that map. It's still one of my favorite digital maps, but, but it still was not a painted map. It was not what I was looking to, to achieve. Rad, did you have any idea that James was looking for someone to pass the torch to? I did see an interview after he, uh, Big Sky acquired Moonlight, and I think James was hired to paint all of, all of that mountain, which was, is now huge. And uh, he uh, was featured in a, a local magazine, and he had mentioned that he was thinking about retirement, but, you know, hadn't, hadn't really put anything out there as far as a date or a timeline. But, but did mention that he didn't really have anyone to pass the torch to at the time. So that also was was a big springboard for me to contact him. And yeah, James, I mean, what was it about Rad that made you feel you could trust him with carrying on this work? Well, I just saw the quality of his work. And, um, you know, he had, uh, uh, as far as hand painting, whenever he first started out, he had a little little to learn, but uh, he's been learning very well and, and uh, has a very nice style. And I'm, I'm excited to see a new style uh, come in. I, I've um, kind of dominated in the last uh, 30 years. And uh, certainly it's fresh that he his style is coming in. And it must be exciting to know that, you know, he will have his own style that'll be distinctive from yours. Well, that's true. And then that's what Bill Brown had always told me, too. He said, don't try to copy me. Develop your own style and really just perfect it and master it. James, can you remind us who Bill Brown is and how did he inspire you? Well, Bill Brown uh, painted trail maps in the decade prior to whenever I uh, started. So he was in the uh, 80s, and then before him was Hal Sheldon. I've been in both of their studios, and uh, they were a great ins- inspiration for me. Rad, this question is for you, uh, because I think it's pretty rare to shift from more digital work to something analog, like hand-painting ski maps. It seems to me that shift would usually be reversed. What in- is inspiring you to make this transition? Ah, boy. Part of it's personal. I get a little tired of looking at the computer and I knew that was coming and I've always loved painting and I I really wanted to to try to get back involved with, with, as you say, the analog work. Uh, The other part is, is I've always appreciated the work James has done, both for the ski industry and and some of the other projects he's worked on. I, uh, as a map maker and an artist, I've always been attracted to his work. And I think he has set such a great precedent in the ski industry that uh, it would be a shame for someone not to at least attempt to, to continue to hand paint. I think there's a, a great tradition there that, that he, and as he mentioned, Bill Brown and Hal Shelton set. Um, and if there's any way I can carry that on to any degree, that's a win for me. Are there any specific maps from James that have inspired your work? Hmm. 
Well, I love the Big Sky map. It, it, uh, the, the whole series of maps he's done for Big Sky are beautiful. It's such an expansive, iconic mountain. I, I can appreciate the level of effort th that was put into that. You know, a non-ski map, though, that I, I still have and I, I fell in love with from the day I got it was his summer painting of Indian Peaks Wilderness that he did. I imagine that was probably 20 plus years ago that he did that, maybe 30 years ago. Quite tell you, but that was an early one, yes. It was. I, I, I've had it for, well, yeah, I, I know I've had it for over 20 years, so. <laughs> it's a classic, classic knee use. <laughs> well, James, I'll give you the last word before we wrap up. What advice would you give to Rad uh, and other potential ski map painters out there? I think my book, the success of my book, uh, The Man Be Behind the Maps, and uh, proves that it kind of galvanizes the um, love that the skiers have and and the acceptance of hand-painted maps and and their influence and their 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 effectiveness and I, I think it's uh, important I'm really glad that uh, Rad has come on to uh, do the hand-painted maps into the future after me and I, I just encourage uh, any artist that has a great passion to pursue their passion and, and uh, really work hard to meet their goals. James Nehus and Rad Smith, thank you both so much for talking with us. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.